This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. First reading is Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, found on page 969 in the Pew Bibles. Remind, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show every courtesy to everyone. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This Spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by, this, by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hear the word of the Lord. Second Bible reading is from Psalm 51, page 880 in your pew Bibles. To the leader, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you were justified in your sentence and blameless when you passed judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion, in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God. So, just before Christmas, one of my favorite things on Twitter was reviews of the movie Cats. 
I'm going to read you just three, but I think they give you a good general impression of what people were saying. So the first one, the best part of our showing of cats was about two-thirds of the way through when a man in the audience stood up, said, this movie is bad and I'm leaving, and he walked out while the whole audience applauded him. The second one, full disclosure, I'm not a cat person. Second off, after watching this frankly mortifying fi film adaption of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats, I'm not altogether sure I'm a movie person. And Cats the movie, the worst thing to happen to cats since dogs. <laughs> cats cost about 95 million US dollars to make, and it's generally been agreed by everyone who saw it that that was a waste. And that raises all kinds of interesting questions about what went wrong and when. Was it, in that, was it that in the film, all the actors have cat features except for human hands and feet? Is it the way the dance numbers are cut so that you can't actually follow the choreographed sequences? Is it that the idea of bringing a musical that was frankly bizarre in the 80s to film in the 20s was just never going to work? Or was it, and this might be controversial, that Andrew Lloyd Webber should have just left T.S. Eliot's poetry alone in the first place? These might be some of those questions that we never discover answers to this side of Jesus' return. But it does leave in its wake, I think, one final question for the director, if not for everyone who was involved in the film, and possibly everyone who paid good money for a ticket. That is... What do you do when you've made a mistake? There are, of course, some classic approaches we can take to any mistake. The first being denial, refusing to believe that what you've done is in any way problematic. Or we can push the blame onto others, either a generic, well, it's not my fault because of the system, the way I was brought up, the culture, the man, the unexpected consequences, or we can find someone specifically to blame. Anyone, anything rather than admit that it was us. But even if we can manage to hold out with one of these excuses for a while, the truth of our failure unsettles us. And we all know that the emotionally healthy thing to do is to face up to what we have done. And yet, to do this is not easy. We don't often like thinking of ourselves as people who have done wrong. The reading from Titus puts it really strongly we are people who are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That description is not a team that I'm rushing to identify myself with. And yet, the Bible identifies all of us within this group. People who are less than perfect, yes, but also people who are inherently dark on the inside, who prioritise ourselves who seek after our own pleasure at the expense of the good, who consistently make less than ideal choices which have profoundly negative consequences on the world. So whilst this way of understanding and thinking about ourselves can be difficult, there's also freedom in it because admitting our darkness is both an accepting of reality and a starting place for finding our way out of it. And the really incredible thing about the psalm and the Titus reading we read today is that they take our sin, our mistakes, so seriously. Both readings are unflinching in the face of recognising us as people who have done wrong, but they also deal with our sin convincingly and definitively. 
Because whilst it can be difficult to examine ourselves for our failures and admit that they are our responsibility, what this sum does is that it allows us to make that examination in the presence of a loving, compassionate and parental God. A God who has acted decisively in history to remove our sins from us. So Psalm 51 is our psalm for today, and you will see in your Bible that before the psalm begins, it has a little explanation, which says, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So to quickly situate that in the story of the Bible, King David lived about a thousand years before Jesus. He was, if you didn't pick it up from the name, the king of God's nation, which was called Israel. David was in many ways an excellent king, but he also made mistakes. And this particular psalm is about a mistake that escalated. David decided not to lead his uh, armies into war, but rather to stay home and stay safe, rather than leading with courage. Whilst he was at home, he was standing on the roof of his palace when he sees a woman, her name was Bathsheba, bathing. Rather than look away, which was the custom of the time, for all kinds of reasons, 3,000 years ago, there was not the kind of privacy that we have today. And so when you saw someone naked or bathing, the custom was that you should look away. But David doesn't. Instead, he has her brought to his palace, and then abusing his power as king, he sleeps with her. Some months later, it transpires that Bathsheba is pregnant, and she comes to tell David. There is a problem because she's married to another man. And so David invites Bathsheba's husband to come back from the fighting to do a cover-up. But Bathsheba's husband, his name is Uriah, refuses to go home to his wife while the other men are fighting. So then David sends Uriah back to the front with the orders that he should be sent to where the fighting is fiercest and so that Uriah is killed. God, of course, is not okay with any of this. And he sends a prophet called Nathan to help David realize and face up to the magnitude of his mistakes. And David, in response, writes Psalm 51. It is helpful to keep this story in our mind as we read it, because it not only helps us understand the language and what is going on, but also, as we recall this story, it assures us that whatever we have done, no matter how badly we have stuffed up, we can always ask for forgiveness. Our God is a God of forgiveness and compassion. So regardless if you are like Tom Hooper, the director of Cats, and have made a $95 million mistake, or you are like David and have made mistakes that have profound and deep horrific impacts on the lives of others, or your mistakes tend to the more garden variety of making cheap jokes that crush another person, being impatient when you're tired, exploiting your economic and cultural privilege, forgetting that all you owe, you owe to the God who made, loves, and sustains you. Regardless of what kind of mistake maker you are, Psalm 51 is a psalm for you. Because this psalm gives us not only the framework to see ourselves as mistake makers, it also gives us the language to come to God when we have made our mistakes, to trust in his love and kindness in the face of them, and to ask and receive forgiveness from the God of all grace. So Psalm 51 opens with an appeal to the nature of God, God's steadfast and unchanging love and mercy to his people. When we come to God, we come to one who is full of compassion, whose love and mercy extends beyond any boundary. Last week in Tim's sermon, we heard that we are our most authentic selves 
when we find ourselves addressing God rightly. And this psalm begins in the same way. When we look at verses 1 and 2, we see that the psalmist describes God before turning to describe himself. Because whilst we might know ourselves to be sinful people, we see and understand this most clearly when we examine ourselves in the presence of a holy God. And of course, when sin is seen in light of who God is, the right response is to want to be rid of it. There are actually three different words here used for the cleansing of sin in verses 3 and 4. The first one, which is translated blot in our Bibles, is the word to wipe away. The second, to wash, is the description of doing physical laundry. And particularly if you think of an old-fashioned pre-washing machine laundry where someone has to really grab the clothes and pummel the dirt out of them. And the third word is the word for spiritual cleansing, to move a person from a state of defilement to purity before God. And if we think about how we want our sin removed from us, using these three different images is helpful. We want our sin wiped away, yes. But more than that, we want it really taken from who we are. And we don't just want to have it removed. We want the removal of sin to restore us to purity. Another way of putting that would be to restore the relationships that it has broken, both between us and God and us and others. From a desire to be rid of their sin, the psalmist moves on to a real ownership of what they have done. And this is important because I think we've all uh, probably at some point received an apology where the person didn't own what they did. A classic might be the person who says, well, I'm sorry if you were hurt. Or as Gretchen Wiener says in the classic film Mean Girls, I'm sorry if people are jealous of me, but it's just not my fault I'm so popular. We know a real apology doesn't own the failure. And here in verses four to six, David owns what he does. In owning his mistake, David shows us the link between knowledge and guilt. There is a right place and time for acknowledging the sins we are unconscious of. But here, David really spells out the crime of knowing the good, yet acting differently. In doing so, David acknowledges that God's way is right. David admits that he has walked deliberate defiance, come short of God's expectations, and gone the wrong way. This should give us pause for the times in our lives when we think we might know better than God, when we think that God's way might not actually be the right way and act with our own moral compass instead. This psalm is a good reminder that in these circumstances, we are just never right. If part of acknowledging sin in our lives is acknowledging that we were in the wrong, part of avoiding sin is clinging to God's way is best. In verse 4, David says to God, Against you and you alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. For me, these verses are jarring to read in light of what we know about what David has done because we know he has sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and not to mention the other people who are incidental collateral damage in the story. Some people have suggested that uh, because our sins are primarily a problem with God, so dealing with sin means dealing only with God, But we know from many other parts of the Bible, from the stories of Genesis, the Levitical laws, the prophets, the teachings of Jesus, the New Testament letters, that dealing with sin in our lives means making restitution with the people we have sinned against. So this is not an opt-out option where we don't have to face up to other people we have hurt just because we are facing up to God. So how do we make sense of this verse? 
I think there are two important things. One is that this is a psalm about an individual, that is David, fixing his relationship with God. And in light of God's overwhelming glory and perfect morality, it magnifies David's individual sin. So David's language here is focused on what the psalm is addressing, that is his personal relationship with God. Secondly, a sin against any other person is also a sin against God, because God is deeply invested in all people and also his creation. When we treat others cheaply, we demean the image of God in them and thereby sin against them and against God. So the language here is about feeling the weight of sin in the presence of God and about the need for that relationship to be fixed. It does not preclude the necessity of also apologising to others and working towards restoring human relationships. And verse 5 is where we really see how deeply sin is a part of the human condition because mistake-making is in our very lifeblood. It is part of who we are from birth to death. And even when we put on brave faces and shiny, happy smiles and put forward the best version of ourselves, that doesn't count to God because he doesn't just desire that we are nice, moral people. He desires truth in our most inward selves. In every quick thought, every secret snarky joke, every bitchy matter we make about that really annoying co-worker, every proud inner self-congratulation, they are all known to God. And more than that, the propensity of our hearts to malice and envy, the desires we dare not speak, and the self-righteousness that denies they exist, even to ourselves. God is not okay with these. Our sin is deep, much further deep down than we could possibly address ourselves. Purge me with the hyssop, David writes, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Our brokenness, our guilt, our shame, our failure are all necessary conditions for God to make something new. God can't fix us if we are not broken. And his fixing in this psalm has an active sense. He creates in us a new heart. Just like at the beginning of time, God's act of creation does the impossible. It brings something out of nothing. God's act of creation here does the impossible again. It removes our sin from us. He creates in us a new heart. There is a certainty here. If God purges, then we will be clean. When he washes us, we will become whiter than the snow. And this cleansing will have the effect of restoring the relationship between David and God. But it's interesting that all through this psalm, David has been addressing God. He has been talking to him. So we can see that even in his sinfulness, he is not fully separated from God. Indeed, here, David says, don't cast me from your presence, which implies that he is there. Because by God's grace, even in our sin, we are still his beloved. But without clean hearts, we are unable to respond to him rightly, to worship him as we should, and to experience the peace and joy of restored relationship. Verse 8 and verse 12 both point us to the joy that God desires for us, the joy that will come from knowing that our relationship with God is restored. This psalm phrases the desire to be cleansed and transformed as a request, but the passage from Titus says it with certainty. Because whilst David knows the character of God, we know it in fullness in the person of Jesus Christ, who, as Titus says, saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but for no other reason than his mercy, expressed to us in the death of Jesus, 
whose death makes our life possible. Both Titus and the psalmist use the imagery of washing to demonstrate that we are freed from sin. I don't know about you, but this summer I feel like I've understood that more than ever because from about much of November, really through to this week, it has felt like that everywhere I have been is covered in little bits of grimy ash. Sometimes I come home and it's in my hair and it's on my clothes. Some images in the Bible feel like they lose their strength in the time and dis- the distance of time and culture. Stuff about vineyards and goats and Asherah poles and shepherds. They feel like they're really foreign to human experience today. But not this picture of needing to be clean. Because since about November, I have felt that great desire of wanting to be clean. And not just me, but the whole city. And just like this week, we saw that a downpour of rain can bring everything to a new cleanliness. In Christ, we have access to unlimited grace. God's love is not a four-minute shower. This is abundant and available cleansing, and it is here for all of us. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Hear the joy. Hear the gladness. Your sins are washed away. They are dealt with. You are crushed by them no more. And of course, how could we not be changed by this? David writes that he will declare the praise of God. He will teach others God's ways and they will also return to him. David's tongue will sing aloud of God's deliverance. If we have experienced the goodness of God in salvation, how could we be silent about that? Is it not the most incredible news? The last section of the psalm is forward-looking to a future time when the relationship between God and David will be fully restored. It is shown to us in the distinction through how God approaches sacrifice. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament dealt with non-deliberate sins, so they're not relevant for David here. So verse 17, what is needed for deliberate sins is a broken and contrite heart. But David is confident that in the future his relationship with God will be restored and he will be able to offer sacrifice again. He will be able to worship God with both his inward relationship and his outward action. We know that the sacrificial system could not deal with deliberate sin because that could only be dealt with by Jesus' death on the cross, which when we trust in with broken and contrite hearts, we are able to access the certainty of restored relationship with God, which again poses the challenge for us that if we are renewed inwardly and we have the certainty that we are, then how could we but show that outwardly with our lips and with our lives? The 51st Psalm is one of the most famous and with good reason. It reminds us of that most central and important message of the Bible, that forgiveness is available, that grace is free, that God loves us and longs for us to come back to relationship with him. We can deny our sin, we can minimise it, we can try and forget about it or hide it from God, but the good news of this psalm is that we never have to. We can know ourselves as mistake makers, but our mistakes are not what define us. In Christ, we are freed from all accusation, guilt and shame. We are defined by the love that God has poured out on us in Jesus. And so whether we come for the first time or this is a regular or irregular habit of our Christian walk. We need only come to grace. Come to the grace that is available, 
or as the 18th century hymn Rock of Ages puts it, vile I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour, or I die. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.